if Jake is ready. I caught Jake unawares. I'm four minutes early. Jake's like, dude, man. You I know we're early. <laughs> <laughs> Things to do today. I'm a busy man. Yeah, you do. Hey, everybody. I'm Kai Rizdal. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. And I'm Nova Safo, filling in for Kimberly Adams. Thanks for joining us. It's Tuesday, February 6th. Today, we're talking about what's going on at the U.S.-Mexico border and Congress's, well, perennial battle over the border and immigration. This is, I think, the definition of an intractable problem, but we're going to let our expert mm-hmm. guests discuss that with us and explain to us why it's so intractable and, and what may eventually be done. Cesar Cuauhtémoc Garcia Hernandez is a professor of immigration law at the Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. Also, he's got a new book coming out on the topic, Welcome the Wretched in Defense of the Criminal Alien, and that's in quotes. Professor, welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. It's my pleasure to be here with you all. What, what do you think? Intractable problem, right? It certainly uh, seems that way. This bill uh, it was declared dead on arrival within, I don't know, what was it, 15 minutes mm-hmm. of uh, being released? Mm-hmm. So uh, my, my, I, I'm not holding my breath. Yeah, no. All right. So look, we, we will because we have to get to the politics of this thing uh, in a bit. But could you just briefly sort of over the past 50-ish years give us a framing of the immigration debate in this economy, please? Migrants are absolutely essential um, to so much of the economic activity around the United States. We all see you know, the, the, the ways in which migrants are doing so much of the work um, that keeps our cities um, and uh, farms and ranches running in every quarter of the United States. But um, as uh, uh, unfortunately, the law of immigration in the United States um, does not keep up has not kept up with the reality of migration. And what that's meant is that um, that there are every year um, people who uh, can get jobs in the United States, um, people who have family members in the United States, um, and yet they are people who cannot legally get into the United States themselves. Uh, And so what that means is that uh, they've Figure it out by any means necessary, and that's when we get these scenes that are, you know, politically um, uh, quite troubling, problematic. But frankly, I think it's the uh, it's the experiences of those migrants um, that are far more troubling um, because they often have to put themselves in situations that are, you know, dangerous, um, if not life threatening. And why do they have to put themselves through that gauntlet? Uh, one of the mm-hmm. things we hear often is folks say we're not opposed to immigration. We're opposed to, um, you know, this kind of lawless immigration that is depicted. Um, and the argument goes, you know, folks should get in the back of the line, you know. Um, so why do you say that they don't have an option, uh, for example, getting back of this, you know, mythical line? Well, to be clear, there are every year millions of people who do go through that immigration uh, law process and do come into the United States. Some of them have the permission to come and make their lives here for, for indefinitely. Um, uh, they get green cards. Other people get permission to come temporarily. Maybe it's to go on vacation. Maybe it's to study. Um, and 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 so that you know, I think I think that often gets overlooked in these political conversations about immigration law that you know the to to a great extent the immigration 
legal system is working um, because every year there are millions and millions of people who are coming um, into the United States who, who are not U.S. citizens. But there's a mismatch. Um, and so when we're talking about um, Mexican citizens or citizens of the Philippines, uh, for example, you know, for some, so, some folks, the line is so long that it essentially takes two decades um, to wait and hope that your visa application is going to be approved in a, uh, in a line that lasts uh, uh, two decades. I mean, that makes uh, the lines at Disneyland seem fast, <laughs> right? It's, it, it, this is not a real line if what you're hoping is that people are going to stand there and wait around, especially when we're talking about, you know, when do you get to live with your family? Yeah. So, so look, how do you disentangle? Because you, you raise a really important po- point between the, the, the legal immigration process, which is largely functioning if ridiculously slow, right? But there is a process and it basically works. And then the, the asylum and border situation that we have. But look, how do you disentangle the nativist tendency of the United States, because that's not news. We've been that way for many, many, many decades, if not centuries, right? How do you disentangle the nativist tendency with the absolute reality that immigration policy is labor market policy? We have to have these people to make our economy work. Well, we're we're stuck in kind of a a, a rut of imagination when it comes to immigration policy. Pretty much all we hear from elected officials is we need border patrol agents, we need more ICE officers, we need more uh, beds inside of ICE's immigration prisons. And ever so often, there's a little bit of, of, of give on the number of visas that are available to come into the United States. So this bill that was released over the weekend would create about 250,000 more visas over uh, a- annually if enacted. Um, and the, the, the reality, though, is that we need a lot more uh, people if what we want is to maintain the strong economy that we have in the United States. Now, that's a political choice. Maybe the cost of the economy is, uh, or of a robust economy is something people don't want to 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 take on right and and that if that's the case and i think we should be having that conversation because that is a question of trade-offs um but instead what we're here is well if we just had more law enforcement officers mm-hmm. deployed to the border we could prevent people from coming to the united states in violation of immigration law and that has never been true it wasn't true and we enacted the Chinese Exclusion Act in the 19th century. It wasn't true when we tried to keep out the Southern and Eastern Europeans in the early part of the 20th century. Um, it wasn't true when the President Trump um, started blocking asylum seekers at the border under Title 42. Um, and if this bill is passed, that would make it easier for federal immigration officials to shut down access to asylum under certain circumstances, um, then I think we should just expect that it won't be true then either. Mm -hmm. So what would uh, a realistic approach to, you know, uh, figuring out our immigration system look like? I I think we have to uh, decide, do we want to encourage uh, migration so that we have enough people to do the work that our economy 
makes available and that an expanding uh, uh, economy needs um, or not? And if the answer is we want to continue being the economically robust country that the United States is, um, then we have to figure out how do we change our immigration laws to allow more people to come into the United States, not fewer people to come into the United States. We could imagine situations in which we um, simply um, expand the number of visas that are available. The, this bill would do that. We could also just decide that we're going to reduce the, the number of sort of stringent um, pathways into the United States um, so that there aren't as many requirements to, to satisfy in order to get into, into the U.S. You know, those are choices that Congress has to make um, because those are choices that Congress has imposed or requirements that Congress has imposed in the past. And the Biden administration is being creative about how it uses its parole authority and is fighting that political fight with Congress about maintaining that parole authority because that's a really flexible tool that's available. And that's how we've seen um, that we have been able to welcome people from, say, Ukraine. Um, we've been able to welcome uh, people from uh, South America and to some extent Central America. With all possible respect, Professor, and I do mean that because you have obviously spent your life studying this stuff and, and working on it, it has been 38 years since we had a comprehensive immigration bill in this country. Um, it, it's entirely possible it's going to be another 38. The situation right now, the status quo, is untenable. What do we do? To be, to be honest, I, I don't think that politicians think it's untenable. Um, I, it, based on the, well, the well, wait, so sorry, that- sorry. So let me jump in here, actually, and let's get to the politics of this thing, right? Because you've got one party in Congress, which demanded and got from a, a Democratic president uh, everything they wanted in an immigration bill, almost everything, uh, and now they've turned around to say no. So clearly they see the Republicans see political opportunity here. The Democrats who want other things, Israel aid and Ukrainian aid, have willingly said, look, we'll take this thing. What are we supposed to do when it's not being treated as a as a serious policy issue, but rather a political football? That's what I mean when I say that I don't think that politicians view the current situation as untenable. Right? When you unveil a, poli- a proposal like the one that uh, we we've, we saw over the weekend, um, and one of the the leaders of one of the two chambers says this is not going anywhere, right? Um, that to me sounds like uh, a politician um, who is who is much more interested and the political opportunity that migration presents right rather than in the policy of migration right. and changing the policy of uh, uh, migration so I, I I agree that I think that we are likely to be in exactly the same uh, situation as far as immigration policy is concerned six months from now and maybe even uh, six years from now. And so what I think that means is that we're going to have more people coming to the United States who do not have the federal government's permission. And so I want to encourage states and cities to be thinking creatively about what they can do to help some of these folks begin the lives that they're so desperately trying to. And, and, if you, and, and, and the 1986 law that Ronald Reagan signed as president that says that um, 
the only people who can be hired to work in the United States are people who have the federal government's permission. Um, that law is really clear that it applies to private employers and it, impl- it applies to federal government agencies. But the law says absolutely nothing about whether it applies to states huh. or cities. So, so that's actually a really good point. And just as a way to wrap this up, especially given what's happening now with Texas and the Border Patrol and them shutting the federal authorities out of that stretch of the border along the river, do you suppose that in the absence of federal policy action, not enforcement action, but policy action, that states and localities now are going are gonna to be the, the front line, as it were, of, of immigration policy? I think they uh, they they can, and I think they should, and I and I think that some of the cities that are run by Democrats that have been asking the Biden administration to do more about work permits um, mm. should start to think creatively about just bringing these migrants onto their own payroll, um, mm-hmm. regardless of whether or not they have the federal government's permission to work in the United States. And mm. I think the law gives them that wiggle room. Professor, thanks for your time, sir. Cesar Cuauhtémoc Garcia Hernandez uh, at the Ohio State University and the Moritz College of Law there. Uh, His new book, On the Topic at Hand, Welcome the Wretched in Defense of the Criminal Alien. Professor, we thank you for your time, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Hmm. Wow, that last point. Right? That's actually Uh, really interesting. That's actually really interesting, right? In the absence of federal action, states and localities are going to be left to deal with this. And we're seeing it now, right? We're seeing it obviously in Texas, but also in the blue states to which Mm. uh, Greg Abbott and and, uh, Ron DeSantis, the governors of Texas and Florida respectively, have shipped those uh, those migrants, deposited them, as it were, on the doorstep. Yeah, and the idea that... uh this law professor we just spoke with says mm-hmm. there's legal wiggle room to do mm-hmm. this. Uh, mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Hmm. Anyway, uh, your thoughts, please, on the political debate, obviously, over immigration, also the policy debate. Um, what do you think? What should we do? What can we do? What ought we do? Um, we'll take that or uh, anything else that's, that's uh, on your mind. 508-827-6278, 508-U-B-S-M-A-R-T. That's the letter U, the letter B, smart. We'll be right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like... $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, You probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. (laughs) 
Yeah. So as I look up at the CNN mm-hmm. uh, uh, monitor in the studio here, it says, and here this is a quote, Biden speaks as Senate border deal nears collapse. So there oh, you have it. Uh, we are going to do some news. Uh, Nova, you get to go first. All right. Uh, let's switch topics. <laughs> let's. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't know if you heard, Kai, but it's Super Bowl week. <laughs> this might come as a surprise I had, to you. yes. Had you? Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. Uh, was, it, was I the only one that hadn't? Um, so um, interesting uh, little uh, forecast from the American Gaming Association, yeah, which right. might have, a, might have a, you know, a horse to play in this race. Um, but they say that uh, 68 million Americans are probably going to be betting on this year's wow. Super Bowl. One in four. 35% higher than wow. last one year. One in four. That's a lot. But... Numbers get more interesting. $23 billion expected to be wagered on the game. And of that, guess how much of it is legal betting at legal outlets? At legal outlets. I I don't know. I don't know. I'm not in that world. One and a half billion dollars of that is at legal outlets. I'm not sure what to make of these numbers, (laughs) but I just thought that. Uh, yeah, I'm still processing. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, are you? If we had an office pool, no, well, we don't have an office pool. I, I would not be because yeah. I'm a terrible gambler. I don't know. Anyway, yeah, uh, I, I know. Forty Niners. Yeah, I think you got to go Niners. Even even as much fun yeah. as as it is to watch Patrick Mahomes, they've uh, they've won it yeah. once already. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, mine is is more of an observation than an actual news item. Uh, just a piece uh, from the Wall Street Journal today, the headline of which is tech layoffs just keep coming as sector resets for AI. I think technology in this economy is taking the easy way out and they're blaming AI for all of these layoffs instead of just saying during the pandemic, mm-hmm. we hired way too many people. I'm really sorry, but we have to let you go. And I know that sounds callous, but I'm being abbreviated here. I just think they're Mm -hmm. taking a convenient crutch of artificial intelligence, which will certainly take some jobs. But I think it would be better for just everybody if people were honest and said, look, we hired way too many people, way too many people. Yes, AI is going to do something, but mostly it's us guessing wrong. Anyway, that's it. Yeah. When will all these start to actually show up in the jobs numbers, these layoffs? So oh, good question. So good, good question. I mean, today is so DocuSign so laying off 6% of its people. I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's coming. It, it is interesting to me that as the economy is robust, right? We're 350 mm-hmm. something thousand jobs last month. The economy's grown at whatever it is, three-ish percent in the fourth quarter, 3.1%, I think, for, for 2024, um, that all these tech companies are laying people off. It's um, And the initial jobless claims aren't budging. So I know. I wonder, are they just finding jobs again very quickly? One uh, hopes. One hopes. Perhaps. Right? Hopefully, yeah. Uh, okay, so, oh, no, I stole your line. I'm sorry. We're going to do the mailbag. <laughs> oh, go ahead. You take it. I read ahead in the Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey right, from take San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot they of things. They wait for us. No, they don't wait for us. Go ahead. You go. <laughs> it's the mailbag. Last week, we talked about the troubles that we're just moving things around here. Last week, we talked about the troubles at Boeing and asked if you would fly on a 737 MAX 9 right now. Very interesting question. I remember that conversation. Mm-hmm. We got this from Clinton Austin. For the longest time, we really didn't have choice in that. You just choose the airline. You don't mm-hmm. know what equipment you're getting. But Kayak uh, added a filter option on their search so that you can actually filter not only by price and date, and airline, but you can also 
uh, filter based on the equipment they are using. So if you don't want to fly on a Boeing Max, you can unselect that and choose something else. Yes, yeah. informed consumers. Although I, I would note uh, that Clint in Austin did not say whether he would fly on a 737 He didn't. Or he didn't say. You know what I find fascinating is we haven't heard from Kayak. Yes, that is true. Because that they have true. the data. They're, yep. there's, they're, they oh, that's true. That's true. Yes, of course. Right. Who's clicking and yep. on that, I won't fly on a Max and who's not. Yep. Yep. I, I would, by the set. way, just for the record, I would fly on you a Max. You would? Yeah, oh, yeah. You would? Oh, yeah. Why? Because I want to get from point A to point B. <laughs> you, you're confident in their safety. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, look. They just, it, it, it's, they just stopped production again. I know. Misaligned, drilled. I know. Incorrectly drilled holes. And I, look, I get that. Yeah. I get that. But but I, it's not it is not in my nature to live in fear. You just, it's like everything. That, that's my, that my fundamental uh, mantra in life is, yeah, everything's going to work out. It's going to be all right. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I just like to give context to folks that you rode on vehicles that had exploding chairs. <laughs> well, get you for, out of for, them. For, for the record, the E2 uh, did not have ejection airplane. seats. But, uh, but we, what was uh, it? The E2 that I flew. The airplane I flew does E2. not have ejection seats, sadly. Oh, okay. Well, Anyway, still. let's move along, shall we? I'll give All you right. the next line. All right. <laughs> so we're going to go now, mercifully. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and leave you with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is just to refresh your memories. What is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? We got this answer from Chris Simon. She is a leading cicada expert at the University of Connecticut. And I'm just going to say without even hearing it, no. I, like everyone else, thought that there were only three species of 13-year cicadas in the U.S., it turns out that once my lab group and I started to look at their DNA, we learned that there were at least four species of 13-year cicadas. The DNA suggested that for at least some of the species of 13-year cicadas, all those individuals north of northern Arkansas and southern Illinois were recently and secondarily derived from 17-year cicadas. We also discovered that about 40% of the people we encountered in the field loved periodical cicadas, 40% <laughs> hated them, and the rest were undecided. We need to concentrate on educating 60% of the population. Oh, my goodness, Chris Simon. Thank you so much for your thoughts and your comments and your input to this podcast, but no. With there, there are going to be gazillions of cicadas traipsing around the central part of this country, and it's going to be completely disgusting. Just, yep. just absolutely <laughs> with not. You on that. <laughs> absolutely not. Agreed. It was one of my least favorite parts of living in Chicago. Oh, so you, you have actual annual, experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The annual cicadas there. Oh, uh, hell no. Still gross. Still gross. And so loud. Right, right. So That's what I read. Loud. That's what I read. Yeah. They're just, it's loud, Kai. <laughs> I, you can't I, get, I cannot. And it goes on and on for like weeks. I yeah. will not. Hard pass. But thank you anyway, yep, Chris. <laughs> All right, take us out. All right. What have you been doing wrong lately? What have you been <laughs> wrong about lately? Also, what have you been doing wrong lately? So yeah, well, that's that, that, that's a whole different make me smart question. What have you been doing wrong lately? <laughs> Tell us. We'll yeah. put it on our podcast. Yeah. And I haven't, I am, for example, haven't learned how to read scripts uh, properly. <laughs> what have you been doing wrong lately is not the question. It's what have you been wrong about lately? Send us your answer to the Make Me Smart question. That number to call is 508 827 6278, also known as. 
508-U-B-SMART. Courtney put an exclamation point on the back of that one. She did. Maybe she's serious. I wonder what that was about. Courtney Berg, Secret Produces. This podcast is called Make Me Smart. Our newsletter is written by Ellen Rolfus. Jake Cherry engineered today. Charlton Thorpe's going to mix it down later. Talia Menchaca is our intern. Ben Holiday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is the wonderful Marissa Carrera, and the equally wonderful Bridget Bodnar is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital and marketplaces, vice president, general manager, and boss of us all is Neil <laughs> Scarborough. Who still, for some reason, only gets his name on the credits on Tuesdays. I just, I don't understand that. You got to be the boss of more than all. That's Infinity right. Infinity. That's true. To get more the than one day. Boss. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.